I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 15. We're going to be in 15 through 33. I'm going to read uh, 15 through 29, and then we'll look at 30 through 33 a little bit later. Up, oh, 15, 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed by the power of the signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. Last week, we heard about being better together, uh, how God is knitting us together as a body, how he has given each one of us a particular gift, a particular talent or a capability uh, to allow us to work together to impact this city for the sake of the gospel. Now, Better Together works on a number of different levels. He's assembled a body here so that we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling, so that we can do what he's told us to do. But he's also made us part of a bigger body. And just as each one of us has a unique personality, just as each one of us has a unique gift to offer our efforts to present the gospel to this community, so has he done with other churches. For other churches who call on the name of Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they have their own personalities. They have their own giftings as well. So we're better together when we're working together to go in one direction as a congregation. We are better together when we're working as a group of churches to affect the gospel. It's one of the things that the Warrington Gospel Partnership is all about. Churches that are in, in agreement on the essentials of the gospel, working with focus and direction to bring the good news of the community. So we are better together. This week, we're going to see how we can 
affect a small part of that ministry. And we'll see that the church needs prayer. Now, we're going to see how we need that collectively, and we're going to see how we need it individually as well. And so why does the church need prayer? Well, because we have been given the most important job that anybody has ever been given in all the history of the world, brothers and sisters. We are bringing eternity to people who are lost and condemned. We've been charged with bringing the truth of our almighty creator to people that don't know him. There's nothing bigger, there's nothing more honorable, there's nothing finer than the charge we've been given to be ministers of the gospel. So we need prayer. We need that communion with the Father to understand how it all fits, to understand what our individual parts are. We need prayer. So Paul has given us and in an effort to try and bring some of that into clarity, he's bring, given us the book of Romans. Paul is writing to the church in Rome. He hasn't been there. He doesn't know who these people are. He hasn't been. He's heard a little bit about them. They've undoubtedly heard something about him as well. And the reason he's writing is to lay a theological, doctrinal foundation underneath the church of Rome. Now, there, there are a number of reasons for this. Number one, Paul kind of started out in Jerusalem. We'll hear a little bit more about that later. But we're, we're talking about Rome, the seat of the Roman Empire. This is where all the power, where all the influence is. If you notice, every time Paul's out in the community, every time he gets in trouble, when he's put in front of a jailer, when he's put in front of, of governors and proconsuls and so on and so forth, what's he do? He presents the gospel. He shares the gospel with them. So Paul's got his sights set on Rome at this point. I mean, he's kind of manufactured the whole situation. He's asked if he could go to Rome. He's a Roman citizen, so he's asked if he could go to Rome. And you know that when he gets there, he wants to preach the gospel. Well, there's a church in Rome. The church is beginning to get on its feet. It's very, in its very early stages. And so he's sending ahead to them a foundation for them theologically. He's telling them, here's where our theology and doctrine is. Get this underneath you. I want not only to preach the gospel in Rome, but I want to launch from Rome because I have other plans. So he has this incredible letter. And, you know, each one of Paul's letters are, are doctrinal in their, in their um, uh, focus. They're, they're theological in their teaching. But here's the great mamma of Paul's writings on theology. And he lays it all out. It's concise, it's, it's deep, it is challenging in some places, but it's a foundation for the church. And at the end of the letter, Paul does something that's very rare in Paul's writings. He talks about himself. He talks about his need for prayer. He presents a prayer request. And what he wants him to pray for is important. So I'm going to call this sermon ministry. This is part seven of our series, uh, The Prayers of Paul, Pray Without Ceasing, The Prayers of Paul. And our passage today is, is broken down into two major sections. We see Paul's plans, uh, past and future, in verses 14 through 29. And we see Paul's prayer in verses 30 through 33. Uh, now, what we've seen in this series is that we understand the prayer um, a lot more clearly 
uh, with a lot more depth when we understand the context of the prayer. So we've been taking our time showing the context of the prayer. What happens just before the prayer? What's going on? What launches Paul into these particular prayers? Same thing today. So we're going to take a, we're going to start by taking a look at Paul's plans. This is in verses 14 through 22, where he kind of delineates what he's been doing, his past activities. And he, he tells them that his main ministry has been to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. This is verses 14 through 18. Now, this is pretty significant. And, and again, we have to understand everything that's been going on in Paul's life. He is the Jew of all Jews, uh, st- studied under Gamaliel, rising superstar of the Sanhedrin. And Paul has been ministering to the Gentiles. It, it's like, this is not the way we would do this if we were going to do it this way. We've talked about that. Peter goes to the Jews. Paul goes to the Gentiles. Paul has been called to minister to the Gentiles. And so that has its own tensions. It has its own difficulties. Uh, but he's been ministering that. And his ministry has been accompanied by miracles. And we see this in verse 19a. In other words, God has empowered him and enabled him to affect this ministry. Now, if you take a close look at the New Testament, in particular, in the very early stages of the church, there were a lot of signs and wonders that were going on. And you know, uh, of course, that's a natural thing. We're talking about God. We're talking about God doing something. He's establishing his church. He's a God of the supernatural. Of course, there are signs and wonders. God is capable of doing anything he wants to do. Somebody say amen. Amen. Okay, so does God heal today? I believe he does. Uh, Does he raise the dead today? I believe he can if he wants to. God can do anything he wants to do. But back then, for those agents that were the, the foundation of the church, These signs and wonders were a lot more common than they are now, and they were used to give credibility to the people that were starting the church. And we're talking about Paul here, who is the greatest church planter ever to exist. Everywhere he went, he planted the church. So he would minister the gospel, watch this, and then his ministry would be accompanied by signs and wonders, and that would be a validation to the people who were lost that God was present and working in, the, in Paul's life. So, And that's the pattern we see in the New Testament. There's a teaching that goes forth, the teaching is bolstered by the signs and wonders, or the signs and wonders go forth and then are followed by a teaching. And they're always demonstrated to the lost. They're always demonstrated to the lost. Very seldom do you see the signs and wonders happening amongst the disciples. They use them to call attention to the gospel. They use them to call attention to Jesus Christ. Paul has been doing the same thing. And he's been doing it in his entire mission field. And the mission field is gigantic. This is verse 19b. It goes from Jerusalem to Elycrium. And the uh, Elycrium is, um, well, if you take a look on the map and you see Italy, Adriatic City is be, uh, the Adriatic Sea is between Italy and Greece. Uh, Illyricum is just north of Macedonia. So Paul starts out in Jerusalem, and he goes through. He goes up through Turkey, which was called Asia back then. Uh, Galatia uh, goes over to Macedonia. He's north. He's almost to Italy, but he turns around and goes back. 
Uh, he's got this huge mission field. He's planting churches all over the place. And he reveals his methodology and how he determined how to do this in verses 20 through 22. And it pretty much boils down to he's just preaching Jesus where Jesus has not been preached. Paul is taking the gospel where Jesus has not been preached. Would you listen to this carefully? The original church, the first church, their mission was to go where the gospel was not preached. That might just have an impact on how we do church today. I got to tell you something. The uh, church in general, the evangelical church in particular, uh, has become a consumer-driven church. You can go to our website. Just use ourselves as an example. And you'll see a list of all the ministries we offer. Here's what the music sounds like. Here's how you can dress. Here are the things that we offer. And, and so everybody, every church kind of has their menu of offerings. And as consumers, you, you've been through this. I've been through it. You look at the church and go, what do they have for me? That's uh, a church I want to go to. Okay, that's not how it started. It started by being focused on the lost. The lost are out there. They're out there beyond the doors, okay? So we need to understand, there's nothing wrong with Sunday morning assembly. This is appropriate. It's appropriate for us to come together. We're called to come together. We need to think about sometimes the reason we come together. Uh, because we should be encouraging each other. We should be coming together for nourishment. We should be coming together for edification. We're going to have a meal in just a little bit together. We'll have some good fellowship. We'll share a meal downstairs. But the whole reason, brothers and sisters, that we come together is so that we can be equipped to be messengers of the gospel out there where the lost are. We're not accomplishing anything if we are just ministering to ourselves on Sunday morning. You know, God calls us to be in relationship. He calls us to be in community. The relationships are important. The relationships we develop while we're sitting here are vitally important. But the reason for the relationships is to demonstrate our unity so that the world out there will see that there's something different about us. The minute we close the doors and think that there's something special about us and not about them, we've missed our calling. Paul says, I want to go where they haven't heard about Jesus Christ. I don't want to build on somebody else's foundation. I don't want to go in and be such a fantastic teacher that all the people that were going to the other churches in that town come to my church. See, sometimes that's kind of our growth plan. We offer better music, better teaching. Maybe the people that are going to this other church will come to this church over here. It's not what we're called to do. So our assemblies on Sunday morning should be a time of nourishment and equipping. We should be equipped to live the gospel out there in the community. We do minister to each other. We do hold each other's hands when we're crying. We celebrate with each other when... When we're celebrating, those are important things. Those are part of the relationship that we're supposed to develop. But the reason the relationship's there is to be a demonstration to the outside world of the power and the presence of God among his people. And Paul knows this. So his methodology is to preach Christ where he's not been preached. 
That was all predicted by Isaiah 700 years prior. Uh, Take a look at Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 15. 13 and 14 refer to Jesus Christ, but then comes 15. 13 and 14 say this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. This is the prophecy of Jesus. He shall be high and lifted up as on a cross and shall be exalted before his father. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance that is formed beyond that of children of mankind. And it, it, it's the, the crucifixion, it's the scourging, it's the, the beatings that he went through. And then in verse 15, it says, So shall he sprinkle many nations. As Christ hangs on the cross, as his blood drains from him, he sprinkles the nations Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. That's Paul's methodology. He wants to go where they haven't been told and where they haven't heard. So those are Paul's past activities. He kind of fills the Roman church in with, this is what I've been doing, this is where I've been going. And so in verse 23 through 29, he talks about his future plans, his future activities. Now he has a big plan, an eventual plan. Uh, the, the big plan, the big picture is he wants to go to Spain. He wants to go to Europe. Uh, we're not sure exactly how he's going to get there, but you can tell Paul's intention is to evangelize all of Europe. He's over in Eastern Europe right now, but he wants to go to Rome and then Spain. He wants to use Rome as a launching pad for Spain. That's the big plan. But his immediate future plan is he wants to go to Jerusalem. And the reason he's going to Jerusalem is he's been collecting money from the churches in Macedonia. And he has a financial gift for the church in Jerusalem. Now, why does Jerusalem need a financial gift? Because they're the church, and they're in a hostile environment. And they have made a commitment to Jesus Christ. And many of them have lost their jobs, lost their livelihood, and lost their families. And they have no way to support themselves. So Paul has been planting these churches, their new churches, and he's been teaching them to tithe and to give, and he's taken a portion of what they've given, and he's going to go back to Jerusalem and make sure that those people are taken care of, because Paul knows that the church is better together. This is a way to express their unity by supporting each other in hard times. We don't know if the churches in Macedonia have an overabundance. All we know is that they gave. Maybe they gave sacrificially. We do the same thing here. You know, 10% of everything that we get goes towards missions. We want to be faithful to that. Uh, By the end of the year, we usually work ourselves up to somewhere around 12 or 13% of everything that comes in goes to missions. That's the first check that we write after we do our collections so that we can be faithful to what we've been called to do to present the gospel where it hasn't been presented. So Paul's plans, they're epic. They're huge. Paul doesn't have a small vision. He has a very, very large vision. It's a world-changing vision. He's taking it in small parts. He's taking it in, in little bits that he can actually accomplish. But he's got this big vision and taking the gospel to the Gentiles and going where no Christian has gone before. And to top it off, God has equipped him. God has enabled him to do this. He's empowered him every step of the way. So Paul turns and asks for prayer. 
kind of sets all that up, and he says, well, I, I need prayer. He has a prayer request, and that's in verses 30 through 33. And this prayer, this request that he has, is a little bit different than the other prayers that we've seen from Paul. Paul has been praying for big stuff. He's been praying for the church. He's been praying for individuals. He's been praying for the holiness of the church praying for the holiness of the individuals in the church. He's been praying for an increased understanding of the love of God, that as the love of God impacts the people in the church, it impacts the people around them. He's been praying for the transformation in their inner beings. He's been praying that as God changes the people that are coming to Jesus Christ, as he gives them new lives and new hearts and a new way of speaking, a new way of behaving, that that transformation becomes evident to the people around them. God is putting himself on display in and through the people of the church, the same calling we have. And Paul's been praying for all those things. And they're good and noble. They're good things that need to be prayed for. But now Paul gets a little bit more personal. So, so he, asks, he has his prayer request for right now. And as we walk through this, we're going to learn four valuable lessons about prayer. In this very short prayer, we've got four valuable lessons. And the first one is in verse 30. He wants him to pray fervently. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Now, there's an intensity that's, that's hard to translate in this word, I appeal. But let me try and describe it to you, what Paul is saying. I'm down on my knees. I need prayer. I need you to be screaming. I need you to be crying out to God. I'm pouring everything I've got into this. I've left everything I had. I've left Jerusalem and the career I had, and I'm moving through this region, and everywhere I go, I'm trying to to establish churches, and I need you to be crying out to God with me. I need it to come from deep down inside you. I need you to begin to demonstrate the transformation that you're going through and how these prayers rise up from you. So it is intense. He wants him to pray earnestly, persistently. He wants him to pray all the time. Paul keeps on saying, I pray all the time, I pray all the time, I pray all the time. And he wants there to be some urgency to the prayer. And after he brings this intensity in, he calls them brothers. Now, if we were going to do an accurate translation, it would be brothers and sisters. Okay? But he wants to emphasize the unity. God is sewing us together. He's knitting our hearts together. He's called us to do the same thing. We're scattered all over the place. There are all sorts of flavors here. But he's called us to do one thing, to be messengers of the gospel. And we need to be praying about this. And it should be easy. He throws these phrases in there that should remind him. He says, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. Now, Paul very seldom talks about Christian experience. He talks very frequently about doctrine, about theology. But right here he's talking about experience. He's saying, you know, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, you're being changed. You're being transformed. You've been given a new life. You've been given a new way to talk and a new way to walk. And you need to put that on display. You have gone through the transformation that Jesus Christ brings into someone's life. You have experienced the love of the Spirit. You've been made in the vessels of the love and the Spirit. And you know what I'm talking about. We have this shared experience. 
So as I cry out, and I ask you to cry out, and we, we look at this unity that we have and the shared experience that we're going through with Jesus Christ. He wants them to strive together with him. Many years ago, I was in this same passage. I had a group of people come up to me after the service and say, we don't ever want you to talk about striving again. I was new. And I was kind of like, ah, okay, what did I do wrong? God accepts us the way we are. We don't have to do anything. When you talk about striving, you're talking about legalism and work salvation and that sort of thing. Don't ever talk about striving again because God takes us the way we are. You know, it was right then and there that I came up with one of the key words in my ministry. (laughs) God, God takes us where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us there. If we're being transformed, if we're being changed, if we're being, being drawn to God, there might not be things that we have to do, but there will be things that we want to do. We're going to want to be closer to Him. We're going to want to know more about Him. We're going to want to know more about His Word. The transformation will affect our behavior. So Paul says, let's strive together. And there, there's a... Uh, there's a, an athleticism to this. There's, there, it, it, it's, it, it's huge effort. It's the type of effort that takes an athlete to train to, to be a world-class competitor. And what he's saying is, and if you, look at, if you look at the language here, as Margaret was so helpful with after the first service, it's, it's, it's a plural. It's we do it together. Let's all work together. We all have the same calling. We're all on the same mission. Let's do this together. Let's pray together. Let's work together to honor God and how we come together. And he wants his prayer to be energetic and urgent. There was a, a, a missionary in the late 19th century, early 20th century to the Muslims. He had a tough ministry. And the reason we remember him is that there's one golden quote that he had that will lead you into some incredible writing that he did. But the quote was, prayer is a gymnasium of the soul. Prayer is what exercises our spiritual muscles. Prayer is what strengthens our faith. Prayer is what makes us stronger. I mean, we, we see this in Ephesians 6, that a great passage on the armor of God, okay? We're to put on these... these uh, Uh, pieces of armor, these attributes of Christ, and the more we become like Christ, the stronger we become in our presentation, and all of this donning and putting on uh, is to stand firm, to stand firm against the evil attacks from the enemy, and all of that, it leads right into the ultimate weapon that we have as believers, and it's prayer. It's prayer. So together we stand against anything that comes against Jesus Christ, anything that comes against the church, anything that comes against the gospel, anything that comes against any one of us. So we have this prayer that functions on a corporate level and on an individual level at the same time. And Paul says we need to be serious about that. Second lesson, Paul wants prayer for his ministry. Verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, 
Paul wants to be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea. Why does he need to be rescued? Well, they're pretty mad at him. He was Paul, the leader of Judaism. And as far as they could tell, he betrayed him. He's speaking blasphemy. And not only that, he's taking it to the Gentiles. He's taking it to the dogs, the people that are unworthy of the word of God. He's saying it's the word of God, and he's giving it to the people that don't deserve it. So they're pretty upset with him. And early in his ministry, every time Paul gets in trouble, it's because the Judaizers are after him. Now he's got to go to Jerusalem. He's got to walk into that that den of the enemy. And they know he's coming. They've heard. So he's saying, pray for me. The enemies of the gospel, my enemies are after me. I've got some serious theological differences with these guys, and they're really upset. And on top of that, I'm consorting with Gentiles, and they don't like that even worse. So he wants them to pray that the unbelievers won't hurt him, and then he also wants to pray, watch this, that his service might be acceptable to the believers. Now that's pretty, you know, I can see Paul saying that. What about you? I mean, God's given us all a gift. He's given us all a capability, something that lends itself to the gospel. Have you ever ever felt like you don't have that much to offer? Have you ever felt like, I don't know, my gift is emptying the trash. That's not much of a gift. Paul says, pray that whatever gift you have is acceptable to believers. Now, that, 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 this doesn't mean that, that the believers are evaluating your gift. It means they receive it, that it's a blessing to them. You see, this whole picture of us being a body, of each of us offering our gift, of each of us doing something that no one else can do but us, every one of us, working together to take the gospel out there and praying for each other, that when our gifts come together, the body would be edified, the body would be nourished, and the people out there would hear the truth of the Word of God. That's what Paul's saying. Have you ever thought that what I need to pray this morning is that my gift is acceptable, is received by the body of Christ? God will honor that. I mean, he honored it in Paul, didn't he? And Paul humbles himself saying, I'm not sure. You know, I need your help with this. Second lesson was his gift might be acceptable. The third lesson in prayer is Paul asked for prayer for the future ministry. He asked for the ministry and now the future of the ministry. And it's in verse 32. So that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. He wants to, you know, Paul's not consumed by what's going on in Jerusalem. He's got the big picture. He knows how bad it is, but he's not so overwhelmed by his circumstances that he doesn't believe that God's going to take him beyond there. And he's saying, help me as we pray for this. He wants to go beyond Jerusalem. He wants to go to Rome. Then he wants to go to Spain. And then he ends, after that third lesson, he ends with this benediction, may the God of peace be with you all, amen. Well, what about that fourth lesson? I did tell you there were four lessons in prayer. We just saw three direct lessons. There's an indirect lesson here too. Because if we know the big story, if we know the overall narrative, we know that not all of Paul's prayers were answered. 
at least they were not answered the way that I believe Paul expected them to be answered. Because when Paul got to Jerusalem, he was arrested. And he was put in jail. And it, it all happened because of the unbelievers that got him in trouble there. So he was arrested in Jerusalem. Um, as far as we know, he never made it to Spain. There are a lot of people that think maybe he did, but there, there's no empirical evidence that says that Paul made it to Spain. We don't have any documents saying he was there. So as far as we know, he never made it. He did make it to Rome, but only after spending two years in prison in Caesarea. And, and of course, and again, you know, this is what I was talking about a little bit earlier. In Caesarea, he's talking to all of the authorities. He's presenting the gospel to them. And he really kind of gets them to the point where we go, okay, uh, let him go. And he goes, no, 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 I appeal to Caesar. I want to go to Rome. He's a Roman citizen. So he chooses not to be released and wants to go to Rome. You know what he's going to do when he gets there. He's looking at the epicenter of all the power in the world at that point, and he wants to preach the gospel in Rome. So, yes, he goes to Rome, but it's after two years of prison in Caesarea and a shipwreck in Malta where he got bit by a snake. You can see Paul going, I don't know what's happening. I wanted to, I, Spain, I wanted to go to Spain. This was supposed to be fun. <laughs> and I just got bit by a snake. <laughs> and I'm on some island that I don't even know where it is. <laughs> I could see where Paul might have thought that his prayers were unanswered. Lord, I want to do these things. I, I want to go where the Christians haven't gone and I want to speak to people that haven't heard your truth. And it's like every time I turn around, something goes wrong and somebody opposes me. How come you're not answering my prayers? Do we know anybody else that went through anything like that in the Bible? I mean, wasn't Jesus in the garden? Didn't he say, Lord, let this cup pass from me? What was his answer? I mean, there was no voice Nobody stepped out of the darkness. I've got a word for you, Jesus. I know you've been praying about something. All he saw was a line of Roman centurions coming down off the Temple Mount with, with torches and swords and an angry mob. See, Jesus' prayer was answered. Paul's prayers were answered. They might not have been what Paul was expecting, he might have had different visions in his head. I, I don't know. You know, the text doesn't tell me. But if Paul was a normal human being, and he was, he wasn't a superhuman being, I think Paul had an expectation. And things hardly ever went the way he thought they would. Do we ever run into that? Do we ever find ourselves praying, Lord, help me. Get me through this. Do this, Lord. Do that. Just, you know, and, and we make these commitments. If you do this, then I'll do this for the rest of my life. And all, all this sort of thing. And, and we cry out to God. And sometimes it doesn't look like he answers. Now we know that Paul's been through this before. Paul had what? A thorn. He said, I prayed three times for God to remove it. Well, God answered that prayer too. He said, no. 
We're not comfortable with no. We're not comfortable with God answering a prayer different than we expect him to. So it's very easy for us to ascribe to him no answer at all. But what's our promise, brothers and sisters? That God hears every prayer we pray and answers them. So we don't need God to answer our prayers the way we pray them or the way we expect them to. We need to have wisdom and discernment to see God's hand moving. See, that's the fourth lesson. We need discernment to know when God's hand is moving. We should pray to see God's hand move. And you know what? I'm going to tell you something. Even, even as I talk about that, and even as you lift that prayer up in your mind or in your heart right now, he's answering it. He's answering it right now. He's answering it right this instant. His spirit, if you call upon him as Lord and Savior, if you have repented from your sins, if you've received him and, and uh, confessed him as the only son of God, then God has given you a new life and put his spirit in you, and his spirit is changing you, drawing you unto him. Making you more like him. And as we gather together, he's knitting us together. The spirit is moving. Some of you feel it. I've heard it from you. The spirit is working right now here at Morton Bible Fellowship. He's changing us. He's putting us on a little bit different path than we were on before. But it's working. And as we go to him and say, Father, show me your hand moving. We'll all work together on that vision that he's given us. So your prayers are being answered right now. And we're not going to understand the full extent until we stand there in eternity. But I guarantee you, a lot of us are going to be standing there going, oh my, I didn't see that. Praise God. He's been working in my life all along. He was immersed in every detail in my life, bringing me to this moment where I stand in front of him. Wow. What a blessing to be able to see his hand moving in our lives rather than to stand there wondering whether or not it is. So do you see Paul's prayer? How it's a corporate prayer for the church and how at the same time it's an individual prayer that reaches deep into our hearts and draws us closer to the Father. If we understand this, we should want that fervent, active, passionate prayer. If we understand this, we should pray for the ministry of the gospel, even right now. If we understand this, we should pray for the future of the ministry of the gospel and the church. If we understand that, we should be constantly praying for the wisdom and discernment of seeing God's hand move in our lives, even as it happens. So there's Paul's plans, and there's his prayer. And they set the tone for us here today in a number of ways. And maybe the primary one is that Paul fully expects these people to pray for him. He's not demanding it, but he's expecting it to happen as a result of the union that they have in Christ together with each other and with him. So he's not just expecting it, but he relies on it. Not much has changed 
between now and then. As a matter of fact, the situation may have gotten worse. You see how desperately the church needs our prayers? We might be in an even more hostile environment than he was. But do you also see that as the church needs our prayers, and as we lift up the church, this isn't some organization that's way out there that we're separated from, because brothers and sisters, we're the church. Each one of us is the church. So as we lift these prayers up for the church, we not only pray for each other, we pray for ourselves. And that's a prayer that God will answer. That's why we should pray without ceasing. Let's do that right now. Lord, we give you praise. We give you thanks. You're such an awesome God, so much bigger than anything we can possibly imagine. And your gospel is so powerful, Father. It spans epics and eons and countries and languages. And Lord, you've placed that in our care. Father, it's impossible for us to do. We need your spirit moving in us and through us. And even now we're aware of the fact that he is. And we thank you and give you praise, Father. Help us, O Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In Jesus' name.